Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, your hobby content alternative. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. It is Friday, and you know what that means. I am joined by Chris McGill, card ladder team, recurring guest. He just had a big boy purchase. We are going to talk about that banger, the process, the acquisition, and the reasons why. Most importantly, we are going to be talking about you, the collector, things that we are seeing, segmentation in the hobby, things that are underway to focus in on the collector. This is a good conversation. These are things that I think about for uh, when I'm kind of in between meetings, when I'm reflecting on my own experience. And I know Chris is uh, very like-minded, so wanted to unpack some of these observations with him and get his reaction. If you like what I'm doing over here, hit the subscribe button. But before you even do that, tell a damn friend you're enjoying the show. Without further ado, let's kick it to the conversation. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. I have my friend, Chris. He is just traveling the country right now. He was at a Nuggets game. He's currently in Phoenix. I'm sure he'll be cheering for his boy, Luca, tonight. Had a big card pickup, which I want to get into. But before we get into that, Chris, welcome back. How are you? Thank you, Brett. I'm doing well. Great to be on. Uh, am I still the record holder for most appearances? I need to know. He- Yes, you you are still up. This one puts you in prime. You've got a little bit of a buffer, so congratulations. I just want to keep my lead. It's, it's, it's one of my few cherished first place accomplishments, so I don't want to lose. I'll let you know if, if at any point it's uh, there's competition, but right now you're firmly in the lead. You unveiled on the crossover that you had a recent acquisition that I think is of note. And I would love to chat a little bit about it. And just to preview with the audience, we're going to get into some topics in this conversation regarding some hobby narratives that's being talked about and that we see on our Instagram. We're going to talk a little bit about content in the hobby and just the role of the collector, I think, in all of this. So that's like the wrap around the episode. But since it is, a, we've, we've lost our way a little bit in the hobby. And since this is a podcast about sports cards, why don't we start with sports cards? You just had a significant pickup. I'm going to like ask you questions about it, but first, like, what did you get and why did you get it? Well, look, you know, it's funny how hobby journeys can overlap. We all like a hive mind in this hobby almost, you know, we kind of go through things, think about things together. As I think about this card that I just picked up, I think about your Roman Reigns Super Fractor one of one. You know, you just there's certain cards, man, and just we just all kind of as a collective we advance, or maybe advance is a loaded word. We change and our you know, and so I don't know, man. I've just been I've been so fixated on you know trying to get the best player of a of the best card of a PC player, and like with McCaffrey. I was trying so hard for so long to get his prism black one of one. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't going to happen. And I'm still hoping that it will, but just seems so far out of reach these days. So, you know, I decided um, to start collecting Nikola Jokic 
when I saw that uh, the early return or the, the early documentation of MVP voting suggested that he was going to win MVP, this, his second MVP this season. I decided like at that time to really take collecting him to the next level uh, and take it very seriously. And I had been like really toying with it before that, you know, like I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure when I decided you, you can't really pinpoint, it, but like at some point over the last three or four months, I just decided like, I'm going to collect Jokic. I just, I like what this guy's doing. I feel like he's just flying so far under the radar. The media doesn't really like him. And there's just opportunity here to be first to somebody's potentially an all-time great. Before you yeah. get into the card, I want to talk yeah. about what you just mentioned there. So sure. you are a student of the NBA. You follow it. You listen to a lot of podcasts. You watch the product. And so all of these things added up to you. And there was this other thing on the side where it was like the opportunity to get the best card of someone that was lingering. So it was it's almost like the there was like all of these things that and the news of him in all likelihood winning a second MVP. All of these things kind of converged at the same time. And that was kind of the trigger for you to say, OK, I want to open up a new a new section of my PC wing. And there's a reason why. And I as a consumer of the NBA this is a guy I appreciate and this is why I want to go in that direction. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well said. Awesome. So I I've, I follow been following your collecting ever since I've been back in the hobby and you don't necessarily, you go, you go pretty hard. And I would say <laughs> this is probably the hardest you could have possibly gone in order yeah. to introduce yourself as a Nikola Jokic collector. So yeah. talk about the card, what the card is and why it's important. Yeah. So uh, the card is, is 2015 Prism Black, one of one. And I, because we are like on the road, we just picked it up, Christina and I did, a few days ago. We have it with us, right? So traveling around with this card. By the way, it has a typo on it. It says he's from the town Sombor, Serbia, but he's really from Sombor, mm. Serbia. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so this card's pretty neat. Um, I, I do believe there wouldn't be much debate with respect to the fact that it's Jokic's best card. He has no National Treasures RPA. Uh, that's partially a byproduct of being an international player drafted in the second round. You know, there's logistical difficulties with getting an RPA put together of a player like that, especially for like the flagship high-end product. So he has no RPA in NT. So obviously it means he has no logo man autograph in one of one in NT either, which you know, maybe you could argue that that's his best card if he had it. He does have National Treasure's signature card, but it's it's not an RPA. And there's a beautiful one of one um, of that too. But I think I think the general consensus is, is that that's Jokic's you know, single best card. And so that's the one that I set my sights on. Is like you know, Jokic. This this is not Michael Jordan, who's me and Christina's main PC. You know, this isn't Luca. This this is this is a player who's just he's he's a, he, he's not in that stratosphere of hobby darling status, and so I felt reasonably optimistic that like I'm not going to be competing against the Spinatrons and the Nat Turners of the world trying to get this card. You know, like maybe there's a realistic shot that somebody like me could could get this card, and so I should acknowledge that like there are a handful of like really elite Jokic collectors who just, you know, maybe started collecting them 
early on or just have so, so multi multi-year head start on me i will never catch these guys i'll never be the top Jokic collector these guys are just their collections they're too insane they're just too far ahead they've done too much and they deserve it and they were on the Jokic thing many years before me and i'm more conservative too like i i waited until like basically it looked like two mvps were in hand before i decided Jokic would be someone i'd be interested in collecting but so the collector who owned this card his name's shane he's his uh handle is nuggets collector 1023 on instagram and he has he in my opinion is one of the top two Jokic collectors in the world he's got multiple logo man autos from flawless and like non-rookie year stuff he's got multiple prism blacks from non-rookie year he until he graciously allowed me to purchase his card from him he had the rainbow the Jokic prism rainbow from the black to the gold and all of it was in bgs 952 just a beautiful rainbow it was it's pretty messed up that i broke that up but that that tells you like how i made a very strong offer for that card and so he you know he already has with or without this card he's top two yoga collectors in the world so you know i really look up to what he's done he was on Jokic. you know he's a denver fan denver sportsman he was on Jokic years and years ago and uh yeah man that's uh you know i i had to go back and forth with him for maybe a month or two honestly just kind of like trying to figure out the price because like he wasn't he really wasn't sure if he wanted to sell it and i just like kept increasing the offer and then he, he finally it just got to a point where he just like he put me out of my misery he was like okay stop i'll i'll just i'll just take this and then yeah we just met up with him last week got the card and he even gave it to me like it was really tasteful he gave it to me in this like this slab saber it's like yokeched out <laughs> It was great. That so incredible. Like to be able to say you own the best card of a two-time NBA MVP puts you and your collection in rare air, which is amazing. So proud moment, I'm sure. I think what I'd like to maybe understand is, you know, we in the hobby have cards in our PC that other people want and are significant. And we go out and view and hunt for cards that we want that other people own and there was a sounds like a very cordial nice exchange that happened and i don't want to get into the finances behind it you can listen to the crossover if you want that information but what i think is important here is the uh what is the kind of the the sport behind the back and forth. And, uh, you know, I, I have cards and people reach out to me and I say not for sale. And then typically I never hear from again, but there's some sort of like communication and best practices that I don't know what you went through might help someone else at else yep. out because, so I'd love to maybe just hear that like back and forth, like the rapport and how it all ended up into a place where, you know, you meet in Denver, you get a cool slab case that's decked out. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, it's really tough. Like you have to have a lot of things line up in your favor as a buyer. And one of the things I think that really lined up in my favor was that Shane had gotten involved in Jokic so early. You know, he'd owned that card for years. He'd had a great run with the card. And he has so many other great Jokic's as well. I mean, he's just up so much on Jokic collecting that like probably for him, it reached a point where it was reasonable to take some cash off the table. I mean, I'm quite sure that this deal financed his entire collection of Jokic 10 times over. 
So maybe not that much, but like, I'm sure that he did, he has done very well in Jokic and he still is one of the top two collectors in the world of Jokic. Maybe the best. I just, I don't want to like pick one over the other because there's two great ones out. But I think one thing that mattered a lot to him and, and to me as well, and I totally understand it was he just didn't want to sell me the card. And then it turns out that I'm like a dealer in disguise who's just going to move this card to somebody else. So, you know, I've already got a buyer lined up. And so I just want to get this card from him and I'm going to sell it to this next guy. And then this next guy is going to send it to auction with one of the premier auction houses. And before you know it, the cards made the round three or four times. And, you know, that just, that, that really doesn't resonate with, with collectors. A lot of times they don't want to see that happen to a card. They want to know that because look, if, if, if he wanted to just send it to auction and see what it could get, you know, or he, if he, you know, if he was trying to actively shop it around, he could just do that himself, you know? He, so I think it was more just like, he could tell that like, I really have become a big admirer of Jokic. This card is an absolute crown jewel of Christine and my collection. And it, it's going to be there in our collection for a long, long, long time. And that really mattered to him. And, you know, it seems like sometimes like just, I guess I would say as a buyer, as a prospective buyer, never take anything for granted, you know, because the seller doesn't know you necessarily, the prospective seller. So just like, don't be afraid to express your collector values because they might really line up with the sellers in a way that makes the seller feel a little more comfortable going into a deal with you. And, you know, another thing, like, especially when we're dealing with like Roman Reigns, super one of ones, Jokic, Prison Black, one of ones, like (laughs) there's not. There's no leverage for us as the buyer. So like, I know sometimes negotiating tactics get used where it's like, well, you know, this sold for this. So can't we just do that? No, it's no. So true. it doesn't work that way in this scenario. In this scenario, it's the ultimate humbling experience. And all you can really do is just offer until you have nothing left to offer and hope that it works out. I, so I love the, the background and the context. And I think what's important about that is that it's a a collector who is vetting the individual who they're buying from and yeah the cat i mean you gave him an offer that he probably couldn't refuse refuse but he also could have just sat with that card for as long as he wants but he trusted in the fact that it was going to go to another individual's pc who was going to appreciate it and not do what so much of the hobby is is about in his front and center, and that's the all-time high exchange, buy something, flip it for more. And I think to me, like that's the most important part of the story. It's like from one collector to the other, it was all right, yeah, the money's great, thank you. But like what's probably just as important is the fact that I'm not gonna see this at an auction house up in the next month or so. Yeah, exactly, man. I could that really mattered to him. It, it would matter to me too. And, and cards can get caught in that cycle where like they fall into one person's hands, like a dealer's hands and the dealer sells it to another dealer, maybe for a little bit of profit. And then that dealer sends it to Golden or PWCC or some, or one of these major leading auction houses. And then that, and then the winner from, of that auction is another dealer who then, you know, makes it available for sale on Instagram. And then, and then maybe it goes and gets fractionalized or something. Just the card goes from having like a really clean, tight concise lineage of ownership to now all of a sudden it's just being passed around you know like a hot potato and you know some people just don't 
like when that happens. No doubt. We've got a lot of other stuff to talk to, but before we, I'm, I want to ask one more question before we move off of this topic. So you spent a lot of money on this card. There is a lot left in the career of Jokic. When you made this decision to buy this card, obviously the second MVP played a pivotal role in this decision-making, but I hate to say like there's prospecting to this because he's just winning two MVPs, but they're, you're, you're buying this card because you believe something else is going to happen on the other side of this with this many years of his career left, I'm assuming. So like talk maybe a little bit about like the potential and like you spent a lot of money, like what on the other side of this outside of just owning this badass card are, are you desiring? One thing I will say is that if this card never went up in value from the date from today until the end of time, I'd be completely fine with that. I hope that it doesn't, you know, lose half of its value uh, over the next five or 10 years. I, I hope that it doesn't, but uh, that's certainly a possibility. But the, the, the pride of ownership of a card like this and just kind of like expressing my fandom of Jokic in this fashion is, is the most valuable part of this deal to me. Like it, I love the, there's so many things that align for me. It's like, I get to really express my fandom of this guy and my appreciation for him as a basketball player. I get to finally own what's probably the best card of a PC player, which like, you know, when, when you're talking to MJ and Luca, I'm, Christine and I will never be able to do that. So being able to have that means a lot. Just being a participant, you know, somehow, some way with him. Like we went to the, the game four, Nuggets Warriors game four at Ball Arena. We were sitting right next to the, the Jokic brothers and the Jokic family. And it just felt like, uh, it just felt in a very modest way. Like we had a small amount of skin in the game alongside this great Nuggets team and stuff. So like all those things are non-quantifiable parts of the value proposition of owning a card like this. These are life enhancements or things that make life more interesting and fun. And they, they'll never be tabulated into the value of the card. So like all those things are value add-ons to me. But then like, like looking at it from a market point of view, you know, the thing that, that is interesting about Jokic, he's in his age 26 season. So he's got many years of physical prime left, uh, health being consistent and, and his durability remaining as good as it has been. He, he should have many years of physical prime left. The style of game that he plays should permit him to have a long career. And, you know, this season he played without his second and his third best players. You know, about 40% of the Nuggets salary cap was in street clothes this year, which is Jamal Murray, who's one of the you know best playoff level guards in our game right now, based on his track record. And Michael Porter Jr., who's one of the most efficient scorers on the perimeter that we've ever seen. So both guys were out this season and somehow the Nuggets still managed to win 48 games and get to a six seed. So I think going into next season, uh, Murray should be ready to go hopefully and Porter as well. I think the Nuggets prospects are really strong to be a title contender or an outside chance title contender next year. And I don't see Jokic getting any worse over the, this summer. <laughs> so I think he's going to be right there in the MVP mix again. And there's a, there's a really bright future. And then also Jokic is uh, an expiring contract next year. So there will be talks about signing a new contract, but he also has his pick of the litter. You know, if he decides to 
I don't know, go to the Dallas Mavericks and, and team up <laughs> with Luca or something like that. You know, one of his best friends in the league. That's an outside possibility that could happen too. So, and look, like historically speaking, Jokic is only the 14th or the 15th NBA player to win two MVPs. So that's a very, and, and by the way, he hasn't won the second MVP yet. It hasn't been announced, but uh, sports books have already paid out Joel and beat betters. Like it's pretty much a lock that he will win. Although it would be funny if he didn't win. Uh, if, and I'm just presuming that he did, but <laughs> it, all indicators look like he will. So if he does get that second, he'll be one of only 14 or 15 players. I have two MVPs, which is pretty neat. And, you know, statistically, he has the third highest player efficiency rating of all time in his career. First place is Michael Jordan. Second place is LeBron. I know this is sacrilege, and it really pisses off MJ and LeBron collectors when I talk about this. And I get it, and I respect it. And as an MJ collector, I understand why. And as a LeBron collector, too, I have some pretty nice LeBrons, too. But Jokic is going to pass them, and he is going to have the highest player efficiency rating career of all time. And this season, this single season, he set the highest mark for the highest player efficiency rating. He set the highest mark for the best box plus minus. Like the the numbers, the metrics on this guy are just insane. You know, he shoots a high percentage from the mid-range. His field goal percentage from the mid-range is better than Kevin Durant's. This guy, it's hard to really appreciate what he does, especially when the Nuggets aren't on national TV very much. And they are, there's not a lot of fanfare about this team or this organization. But this guy has very quietly put together an all-time career through the first 30 or 40% of his NBA career. And when it's all said and done, he's going to be one of the true legends of basketball, health permitting. So that's that's the glass half full optimistic take on Jokic. I can also give you the some of the downsides too, just so that we, we round out the picture. Yeah, let's go. Okay, so I'll just make this real quick. Jokic is at risk of early retirement. Uh, he's made a bunch of money in his career. When his family came over to America, they didn't even speak English. You know, it's been a huge cultural adjustment for them to be here in America. And it's entirely plausible. And, and I'm not the one who came up with this take. I've heard sports journalists talk about this, that he's made so much money. He's, you know, maybe he does one more five-year contract and then he might just retire at age 31. You know, he might just be done. And say, look, I made you know three hundred or four hundred million dollars. This is great, but I'd like to go back to Serbia now and just ride horses. And that's what he does in the off season. He doesn't talk to the media. He doesn't seek out attention in the off season. He goes to Serbia and he just relaxes and rides horses. So, like that could happen. That he could have an early retirement. Uh, you know, the other thing too is that maybe just he's never in a position or on a team to really contend for a title. Maybe the health just never really works out. You know, I mean, the closest he's gotten is the Western Conference Finals during the bubble uh, where they played the Lakers and they lost, I think, 4-2 or maybe 4-1 even. It, it was a series. It, it, at one point, it was 2-1, but then Anthony Davis made a buzzer-beating three to put the Lakers up 3-1. So, like, it's it's possible that just the stars never align and he, he never gets a chance at a title. And, like, a title is very important to basketball players' legacies, you know. And then also, like, there are some people out there, NBA analysts, who believe that whether it's Rudy Gobert or Jokic or Embiid, but particularly with Jokic, they feel like if you have to play a center like him, uh, it's going to be very difficult to win a title because these there will be teams in the playoffs, like the Warriors right now, 
who could run out these small ball lineups and put him into pick and rolls. And then he becomes a big liability on defense when he's trying to guard Steph Curry on the perimeter or something like that. So like there are analysts out there who feel like these, these center, these super highly efficient, highly productive centers are not going to be able to anchor defenses that can win championships. Like these are some of the knocks on Jokic and they're very fair. So like, just so we round up the pictures that people who are looking at Jokic and say, wow, that sounds pretty good, but you should also have in hand. These are some of the reasons to be skeptical as well. Giving his own counter takes to himself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was good. And um, I think is a good segue into kind of uh, what I want to talk about. And most of this is like around the collector and we, we talk about the hobby and, but there's so many different things that happens in the hobby and we all want certain things to take place. However, the interests of individuals, whether it's a collector, a flipper, a breaker, a business, like everyone's, everyone has different intentions. So I want to like, maybe just so the audience knows, like, like I want to have this conversation from the perspective of like the collector and people can probably, people likely will, people have with me disagreed with some of what I will say and what we'll talk about, which is fine. Discourse is a good thing in the hobby and we should have conversations like this, but just want to set the stage for this, just letting everyone know, like, this is from the collector's point of view. And I'm going to start here. You just spent a lot of money on a card. And I would imagine if you like, when you got back in the hobby, if someone told you, Hey, you spent this much amount of money on this card, you'd probably think they were fucking crazy. However, like your maturation and investment in the hobby owning your own business, right? Running your own business through your own collecting, through sports, fandom, all of it combined, you having a desire to have the best card of a player that you really admire. Like all of these factors culminated, I would assume, into you making this purchase. Um, and this likely didn't happen overnight. Is, is this accurate, Chris? Very accurate. Also, like Christine and I have been like card radicals since day one. I no lie, no exaggeration. Every spare dollar, sometimes not even spare dollars, have gone to buying a card or buying a box of cards for the last six years of our life. Like we are card radicals. We just, we are, we are just, you know, we just can't stop. We are, we're, that's, that's the phrase I just used right now. It's just, we are radical card collectors. I think that's important to call out because you know, we all have different life situations and financial situations, but I can assure you this, from my point of view, after the money goes into the family fund and to to all the bills and stuff, at the end of the paychecks and everything, I've got a certain amount of money. And whether I I hold on to that to let that pot grow or whatever, I'm spending that money and the money is going to to cards. So that, that, that's why it's like, I think about the, the, uh, Jokic sale and the collector on the other side. And it's like, he's got all this money now. It's like, I would imagine based on his profile, it's like, he's pro- probably just going to go buy more cards. Is oh, that a safe assumption? He's already king of the Jokic world. He's really into F1 cards right now. So like, I think he's probably going to make some, some moves in F1 in the F1 space. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's big Broncos collector too. I have no doubt that money's going right back into cards. That's always the thing. Like anytime I even think about selling a card, it's like, okay, when I get the proceeds, 
I know that this money is going to just buy more cards and hopefully I'm disciplined with it. It's like, I'm not just like picking off little 200, $300 cards on eBay for like a year straight and just kind of being like, ah, oh, damn, I just got this whole pile. I should have just waited and bought a big grail. So like, that's always the real risk of, of trading out a card for cash is like, am I going to be disciplined and spend this cash in a way that's really going to make me happy about the, where my PC goes next? So if we use yourself as the example and the extreme example is Christina and I, whenever we, we have like disposable income, like we're using it to buy cards. I want to take this back to something that we hear in the hobby all the time. And that's this, this narrative that is sent out. It's like just shot out and without any context, but the narrative is we need to grow the hobby. We need Mm. to grow the hobby. And so, you know, Everything that's transpired with, you know, let's just say the, the example that just comes to mind. And I, I, again, I use this from the level of it's, this is not necessarily a bad thing to have people like Drake come in and rip some boxes. Um, but the fallback from people on the Drake stuff is it's okay. Like this is good because it grows the hobby. And I think my, my point of view, and I'd love to get your position on this is that, yeah, it's okay. And we need these things to grow the top of the funnel, but like, Shouldn't we like be focused on trying to build people who are already there and to get them to take that leap like you would were to be like, all right, well, the money that I was spending on maybe like, you know, this other interest of mine, that's not as satisfying as it is if I just took those funds and put that right back in the hobby. So when I think about growing the hobby, like for me, and maybe it's the way I operate on the business side, it's like, Let's satisfy the foundation and the people that are already here. And if we if we satisfy those people and we give them the right things and connect them to the right collectors, then th- that's going to grow and those people are going to spend more money. So I, I just love your take on like this. How do you think about it when someone says like grow the hobby? Like what's your position on it? Dude, well, I, I love how you just explained that. And that's something that uh, I can tell is part of the maybe we might say the mission statement of stacking slabs is building on and and helping people enhance the experience of being involved in cards because like make no mistake about it content is a really important part of how we enjoy cards you know like the, the what content can do is it can unlock and help us think about collecting in new and interesting ways and it can you can you bring on a whole wide array of different types of collectors who offer different approaches and different perspectives on how they collect and why they love to collect. And like, as a, as an audience member, I can pick and choose like, Oh, I like how she does this. I like how he does this. You know, let me take these different pieces and incorporate them to make me a better collector. And and that is the ultimate sales pitch for cards. In my opinion, is that collecting cards is an unambiguous improvement on the quality of my life versus if I'm not collecting them and I'm not part of this community and I don't have these intellectual challenges to satisfy and I don't have these, you know, these hunts and these these chases to put together the collection. And there's also a body of work from the field of psychology on like collecting and why, you know, on a on a more biological level, human beings collect things. Like collecting isn't just something we invented out of thin air that there are real biological and sociological bases for why this is a hobby and a passion that people gravitate to. 
and enjoy. And so like, if we can learn about those and, and actually like make, make it more explicit what it is that makes collecting so great, we can actually probably become even better collectors and enjoy the collecting experience even more. So I love the perspective and I don't hear it in many places, if any, the perspective of, Hey, let's, let's help the collectors who are already here make their collecting experience even better rather than this constant like churn mentality of like, let's just get new people in and then just get more new people in. Let's just get more new people in. And we're, we're not serving the people who are already in who, you know, might become card radicals as well. So I, I think that's a really sharp take. I don't even, I can't, I don't even want to add anything beyond that. I just, I want that take to just resonate. I think that the thing that I think about a lot is just like the, we say grow the hobby, but on the other side of it, we, in order to grow anything, education needs to be involved in for, for us in the hobby. And for the, both of us as people who do this, it's the, the education and part of the kind of serving the hobby and the collecting community is through content. And so I think it's mindfulness around like what the platform is and, and who you're talking to ra- rather than it seems like most a lot of the content out there is just like we we are creating sports card content and this is we're sending this out and we're sending this out because we want more followers likes subscribers and we're just going to keep doing this because we're hitting this algorithm and so i saw in your story you said i think which is good like it's simple but good you said there's two types of content <laughs> creators so maybe dive into this and this can kind of segue into like our conversation around just like content and the hobby in the current state yeah well, there's there's a lot of systematic incentive structures pointing people towards hitting those algorithms, and so the those algorithms on social media have a lot of control over and influence over the type of content that our content creators are being incentivized to make. And so, but the the tweet or the story that I sent out this morning was there's. You can basically break down hobby content creators into two categories, two basic categories. You have one category of content creators who are people that make cards the focus of their content. And then you have another type of content creator who make themselves the focus of their content. And it's, and then, you know, there is a gray area too. Like there are people who do both and, and you can do both effectively. But I get really leery of the second type of content creator who's making themselves the star of the show when the star of this show historically, and which was part of the building blocks for the boom of this hobby, the star of the show is the cards. That's why we're here. We're here to discuss and engage in collecting and in particular collecting cards. So that first category of collector who, you know, or content creator who makes content about the cards themselves, I really want to reward that person as, as an audience member and as a collector. And that second type who's more so making content about themselves, I'm suspicious of that person and I'm skeptical of that person because what's to stop them from building up a sports card audience and then suddenly pivoting into Top Shot? or pivoting into NFTs or pivoting into some other adjacent collectible field like Tamagotchis uh, 
or something like that. Not that that is an asset class, but uh, you never know what, what the next asset class or VHS tapes or something. Just pivot into it. And as a stakeholder in the well-being of the sports card industry, I don't want, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, to want to see that type of pivot because they end up eventually influencing some subset of their card collecting built up audience to leave cards and to go into this other space because there's no loyalty to cards. The, the loyalty is to themselves. The loyalty is to the audience that they've built, that, that they believe they are the center of that universe. And so, you know, maybe this year they're doing cards, but, you know, next year they're doing Funkos. And then the year after that, they're doing ticket stubs and nothing, there's nothing wrong with those categories or those industries, but that's not what I'm here for. I don't, I'm, I'm here to, to really support and encourage and, and try and drive interest in the sports card industry. This, I'm good. I don't, I don't need anything else. I'm good with, with this card industry. That's the content that I want. And I'm, and I, and I'm not a big fan of content creators who, you know, they're here in cards because cards is very popular right now. So, you know, they're, they're, they're audience building through card collecting, but this time next year, Maybe they've completely forgotten cards and they're and they're directing a whole audience of card collectors into some other field. I love that. And that is happening. I think anyone who's paying attention can see that and see that see those pivots and just listen to the what people are messaging. And I think one thing that I want to call out as we're talking about this and just want to make this very clear is that when I when I say grow the hobby, I think one of the most important elements of that is. This is kind of, which we might we might I might want to hear this take from you here. I wasn't planning on this, but the uh, we, we I wanted you to touch on the kid Illuminati a little bit. But <laughs> but, but before you do that, I'm going to set the stage by saying like we we need new avenues and paths, whether it's product, content, education, tech, get young collectors grow, see what's possible, get them out to shows, and like eventually have them be the the future of, of our hobby. Like. I'm by no way like saying we don't need that. I think for me where things get a little twisted and I'll give you two examples of like, so if, if I'm a kid, where am I going to go to learn? I'm probably going to go to YouTube. And so like they search sports cars and then they end up on these, all these areas that people maybe are in it for themselves and they're trying to grow their audience. So all of these creators are building these audiences with a bunch of kids and then they have access to this audience. So then that's when they start their messaging and, send kids sideways and then eventually they leave because they're, they didn't have a good experience. That's like the negative, like the positive to me is like new kid comes in and like finds card collector two and starts like consuming Ryan's YouTube content or you're a lapsed uh, hobbyist and you come in and you, you land on like nineties basketball cards and you hear Jake talking about like old nineties sets and that like builds nostalgia and you b- immediately build connection back with the hobby. So like, those are like, Examples where I'm like, YouTube can be really good and powerful, but then on the flip side, it can be really bad. So I'd love for you to maybe comment on that. And then uh, you don't need to like go hard at it, but I think the kit, your kid Illuminati take is pretty strong. So if you want to touch on that, go for it. Oh man, these kids are a big problem. No, uh, <laughs> okay. So yeah, man, I, I think you actually nailed it. But like over the last uh, maybe two years, we need to like, segment the timeline here from, from between the the onset of the pandemic in early 2020 until you know that that blow off top that happened in q2 of 2021 there was a bull run in the card market 
expansion by multiples and it didn't matter. Like we, we had no reason to be self critical as a community of content creators because we could do no wrong. You know, just everything was the momentum, the organic buildup of card collecting, just the, it was, it was never going to be stopped. We could not, st- it, there was, it was already happening. And so we just never had a reason to reflect and, and turn some criticism inward on ourselves as a content creating community. But over the last year or so, many segments of the market, not all, but many have been stagnant in the aggregate or have gone down even. You know, I'm thinking of the basketball card market in particular. You know, and there's a lot of offsetting things like for every, you know, for, for every bowl bowl card ladder index that lost 95% of its value, you know, there's a Steph Curry, you know, NTRPA uh, that increased by 6x over the last 18 months. So like they things offset, taste preferences change. But the thing that's undeniable is that a lot of the people who were participating and were part of that bull run of 2020 and early 2021 have left the hobby. And the, you know, some of the evidence of this is that like, number one, like, the discord groups that used to exist um, among these people, like the cook groups, as they were called, you know, they've all disappeared or they've pivoted to NFTs or they, or they've, you know, gone back to maybe sneakers, but these, these card cook groups, as they used to be called, they're gone. And if you want, if you go into your Walmart or your target right now, you will see product on the shelves, basketball, football, baseball. All right. So I'm not mad that these people are gone. I think it's good that product is on the shelves, that retail product is available. I think it's good that you can go on eBay and buy those same blaster boxes for the same price that you can buy them at the store. And there's not 8X markups. There's not people buying out these entire online distribution runs. But make no mistake, like, A, something brought those people into our space. The people who run the Discord cook groups, people who buy out all the retail boxes, the people who were buying prism base and mass and then grading it and then selling it all and then buying more graded copies to drive up the price of the ones that they already had you know these markets that have collapsed and lost 70 to 80 percent of their value you know ever since that blow off top happened you know that's because the people who were driving them the energy behind them those people have have cut bait they have left they are gone they bailed on the hobby they're out. And once again, I'm not upset that they're out. But if we take a critical objective look back at like what actually happened was there was certain types of content that was bringing in a certain group of people that in particular, you know, these guys who were very, who, who have no interest in cards as collectibles, as long-term items, but instead people who saw an arbitrage opportunity. And so they said, yeah, you know, we're going to pump these prison-based PSA 10s. You know, we're going to pump this retail product. We're going to hoard all of it. We're going to drive up the prices. We're going to bid up these auctions. And then we're going to slowly leak out our supply when we think the market's at its top. And then we'll go from there. And then here comes Top Shot. Here comes NFTs. And now those people have moved on and gone into these other categories. But there was something that was magnetizing these people to the card industry. And they did a lot of harm and they did a lot of damage to actually authentic collectors who just were just dipping a toe into this hobby 
and who didn't know better, who didn't understand that a Luka Doncic prison-based PSA 10 could go from being $2,000 to $400 without any drop-off in Luka's play. Luka has only gotten better and his career prospects have only gotten better since that card peaked at $2,000 in August of 2020, but it trades at $400 now. And there were voices in the wilderness screaming, saying, population 20,000 on this card, these prices make no sense. There were people out there saying it, but nobody wanted to hear it. And so in all these cluster of people who came in, they left. And so I say, A, you know, why did they come in? And it was certain content that, that gravitated them into this space. And if you just kind of survey the content landscape, particularly on YouTube, and I'm not naming anybody in particular because there are some great content creators on YouTube as well, in some of which you already pointed out. There's many great ones, but there are some bad content creators, in my opinion, who hit that algorithm and who also build up their followers and their view counts in dishonest ways using bots and fake views and fake followers. That's happening too. They have built up audiences and they've built content that, that brought in the get rich quick crowd. And when more legitimate, serious, long-term oriented people, let me put down my pen, when they started coming into the hobby, you know, and like looking at this space, I'm worried that many of them said, this feels like multi-level marketing. This feels like a scam. These returns that we're seeing on these really high population items make no sense. I'm sorry, but this isn't for me. This isn't the hobby that I grew up loving. This is this, this sports card thing. It just seems very scammy. It seems very get rich quickie. And I don't want to be a part of that. And so our content in an evolutionary sense selected for a certain audience and it pushed away a different type of audience. And now we're paying the price of that. And, and we, it was hard to be critical of it at the time because the hobby was just on this bull run. But now we can look back and say the leading content of this industry was magnetizing the get rich quick crowd, the crowd who just are here for the money and here for the quick flip. And they don't care if anybody gets burned and they sure as hell don't care about our industry. They don't care about our collectors. They don't care about cards. While those people did their damage, they raped and pillaged and now they're out. And so that leaves us saying, well, where do we go from here? And to me, we need a referendum. We need a referendum on what we want our hobby content to look like. We need to learn from the mistakes of that era. And, and we need to do what you just said at the beginning of this segment of the discussion, which is we need to focus on really serving the collector, helping people enhance their collector experience, and helping people want to be genuine collectors who love this industry, who love trading cards, who love sports, and who want to be in it for the long haul. So much there. Um, just to... <laughs> just, just, just to so a couple just reactions. So number one, I didn't think possibly an individual or a group of individuals could have been responsible for this arbitrage that we saw. But when you peel back the onion and look at actually what's happening, it's in fact what happened. It's in fact what happened. Just go, go, go look at the conversations, go look at the prices, go look where everything is at. And so that is with, with a bullet, that is something that did happen, which is this is, we're in the internet, we're, we're in the age of the internet, we're in the age of access, we're in the age of the influencer. And this made a lot of people feel really good at the time when all of their views were going up. Um, and now it made probably people invested in that shit not so good when they lost all their money. So what are they going to do? They're going to leave. So that, that happened, I think. 
the other thing that I just, I, I want to respond to is that like you, the segmentation portion, I think is very, very important because I don't think necessarily like some of this content, while it might, I, I'm, I don't want to be the judge and jury and say all of this content is bad. And in most cases, like most of it's just not for me. Like, I'll be honest with you, like I'll hit a YouTube page and they'll be talking about Pokemon and the kind of the chase and the pursuit to find a certain card and why that card is significant. And I don't collect that at all or nor have any interest. However, if it's two collectors talking about this thing, I can relate to that. And I appreciate that. So I think like what I've observed and noticed, and especially through my own testing, it's like, it just like, let's talk about the cards. Let's, let's talk about what cards matter. Let's talk about what cards get us excited, what we buy, why we buy it. And like, the more we lean into that, I think as a community, like the more educated, rational um, hobbyist comes up and from behind the, the curtain and be like, oh shit, you guys are talking about cards. Like, I'm sure you get it on the crossover. It's like, I'm here. Like, let's talk about cards, which seems crazy because it's the hobby. But for so long, we were lost in this, like, let's make money and look at these base cards that everyone can get. And if you buy this base card and send it to PSA, like you can make four to five X on your returns tomorrow. And I just, to me, it's like, that's not a sustainable way to grow the hobby. A sustainable way to grow the hobby is to connect collectors around something that they're really passionate about. And that's the card. Yeah, you nailed it, man. And like, you know, look, we we as a community certainly should permit ourselves to make mistakes, to learn, to grow, you know, to evolve and advance. And this is a critical juncture where we can do that. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to look back and say, you know, maybe we're going to have to go against what the algorithm incentivizes. You know, maybe we're going to have to not put such a high premium on who has the most views, who has the largest follower count. Uh, because for among other reasons, you know, I would personally, I would rather have one audience member of the crossover who has been in the, the hobby for 10 years who loves cards and who just, you know, is here for the banter about what's really the better rubies in basketball. Is it the 97, 98, because that's the first year, or is it the 98, 99, because the design is more aesthetically appealing? There are people, <laughs> I want that one audience member who's here for that banter rather than a thousand audience members who are just like chomping at the bit to get the next hot tip for how to flip the cards of this player before the you know the bottom falls out on the market for that player. You know, that's my that's my take. I I think I can actually confidently say I want that one collector. I would value having that one collector as an audience member more than having a thousand audience members who don't care about cards, who don't love our industry, who don't have a mind towards the long-term well-being of it, but are just here to, you know, make money while they can, burn anybody that that happens to in, encounter them and then just move on and and just leave our industry high and dry so, you know there that's not a recipe to sustainable success and unfortunately there's a lot more people right now you know who are of that of who are a part of that group of thousand than there are of that one true collector but i think we can i think we can bring in many many more people who will love this hobby the way that we love it and not 
only because of its financial prospects. Although the financial prospects in sports cards are are incredible. We have such a great story we can tell about the way this market has matured and about some of the success stories that have occurred in the sports card market. We have a really compelling story to tell there that's that's fascinating. But that story only makes sense if it's in the context of a long-term sustainable hobby that's filled with collectors who just love this thing and who value the cards more than they value the money. That's that's the really simple <laughs> recipe to a long-term success in a collectible space is people who value the collectible more than its market value. That's, in a nutshell, the formula that, that we should be encouraging and spotlighting. It's like there's, there, and, and I live and breathe it. You know, it's, it's not even, it's just a truth. You know, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't be interested in, in spreading that concept. But it is true to me. Like collecting is, I can't put a price on it, being a collector. Like take all my money. This is, this is, I love this hobby. I love these cards. So, you know, that's, if, if that's the messaging, I think that wins. And those are the people that we want in our audience. Passion over profit. That's for, for damn sure. And b- before we let you go, I want you to, I'll give, give the first kind of shot at this, but I want us to maybe give the collector out there listening to some confidence and maybe some um, direction on things that maybe you and I have done in order to kind of get focused in, build a hobby experience that is less about the mainstream uh, flip this card stuff and more about collecting and connecting with like-minded individuals. Um, and I'll, I'll share my example. And then Chris, like anything you have to add on to it, but just for me, it's been a lot about kind of curating my hobby experience where, whether it's um, blocking out the stuff I don't like, and if it's repeatedly hitting my feed, I'll just unfollow or get rid of it. And then searching and exploring accounts and getting recommendations from people that I trust about accounts to follow and interacting with those individuals about the cards on their page. It's incredible the amount of information you can gather from. I take this approach, Chris. I, I say everybody on Instagram who's got a sick page and collection has 10x experience in the hobby than me. So if I'm going to approach them, I'm going to learn something from their page. And so I'm on a couple different chases right now on some cards and that (laughs) happened organically for me. And I've gone and found collector pages and just those interactions I have. It it not only like you get connected to somebody who shares a passion around a player, but then you learn about cards and it's like you have a new relationship and maybe a new source to go to if you want to pick up a new PC card. And to me, like, that's stuff you can't manufacture. That's stuff that you have to put in the work to make happen. But I promise you, like, if you do that and spend time doing that and pick and choose which content that you're going to listen to and don't, don't just say, I'm going to go consume everything, like curate your stuff. And the more you do that, the smaller the hobby gets and the more satisfying it is. At least it is, it's for me. So that's what I've been doing to keep, to keep saying. Um, I'd love to hear just anything on your end, like, things or advice you have for the audience just in terms of blocking out noise and enjoying the hobby more. Oh yeah. I love that, man. Like I just look at your, your story in the hobby too, which like you're about, you've been doing stacking slabs for two years. Is that, is that about right? Yeah. I mean, dude, I remember when we hit the two year mark on doing house of Jordans, which would have been, I don't even, I, I, I suppose, I suppose we did house of Jordans for only about a year and a half. 
because uh, we started in the winter of 2018. And then once we started card ladder, we didn't have time to keep doing it, which was in the, the spring of 2020. So, you know, over that time, like, I think you and I are similar in this way. Christina's this way. Like, we actually learn by doing. Mm. And maybe I'm going to be too lazy to look up the checklist of a set if I'm just doing it for myself. But if I know I can make a piece of content out of it and like make a story post about this card, like that's the extra edge that gets me to make that content. And then I learn from it, but then maybe somebody else consuming that content learns from it too. So I've seen like, I know what it's like to be on that podcast trajectory and to start, you know, from, from a place, from place A and then get to point B and then C and then, you know, and, and like you're developments like you've you've always been passionate about wrestling and i just you felt your way out into how wrestling is part of card collecting and then you found lots of great nuggets of collecting you know wisdom that exists in that space and you sought out the collectors and like there was this community of them on twitter and then there's this community of them on instagram and then the, you're, there's these landmark moments in the wrestling culture that rallies all the collectors around each other and then lo and behold, you know, Panini goes, it's partially because of the fanatics thing and the way the licenses are changing and just partially because of the momentum of wrestling, just a perfect storm of Panini decides we're putting out this wrestling prism and the release of this one product, you know, supercharges the enthusiasm and the momentum of this emerging sports card category, which is wrestling cards. And like, if somebody wanted to just reverse engineer or look back over a timeline of how and why wrestling cards became the the sensation that they are in the hobby right now, like you actually chronicled that whole experience and went down all the different wrestling card rabbit holes. And then here we got to where we are today. And it's just like this hobby in has the weirdest way of rewarding authenticity and passion. And it and eventually it always it always happens where those collectors who have stayed true and loyal to what they like and made authentic content, at the end of the day, you know, they reap what they sowed and they are rewarded. And so I look at like that that that's a very like difficult take to have if you're just like a person who just came into the hobby, because like you don't there's you don't have anything that like I can compare what you experienced with wrestling was very similar to what we experienced with Michael Jordan inserts where like we were fascinated by them. We made a whole podcast about them. We were collecting them, adding them to our collection. And then like in the background, other people were naturally because we just followed our natural instincts and what we liked. And other people were naturally gravitating to it at the same time. And we formed a community and like, we all got to watch is that market, you know, and that in the collector base for that stuff just went parabolic over a period of, you know, two or three years ultimately. And so, you know, you've experienced that, like that's, that to me is the magic of the hobby content experience. It's when you're really authentically passionate about something and you even throw yourself into the game, whether it's something very humble, just like posting your collection on Instagram or Twitter or engaging in dialogues about it or going on the message boards or forming group chats or, or engaging with content creators who are leading, who are leading, you know, the, the discourse around that space and then, you know, staying true to it through the ups and the downs. And then two years later, looking back and surveying the landscape of what happened and just being like, wow, what a ride, what an amazing 
you know, way to organize my friendships. What an amazing community. What an amazing way to spend money on something that's an entertainment, but also an asset that appreciates. I mean, when you really look at it, it's incredible the way that these collector communities and content spaces can can grow. So like, I have nothing to add to what you said, but that story that I just told, it, that experience is out there waiting for any collector mm. who really wants to take this content game seriously. I, I freaking love it, man. Uh, uh, yes. Yes on all of that. Um, and it, it's just like, to be honest with you, and you know this better than anyone else, it, it really it starts with blocking out everybody else, and it's your personal passion and interest that drives the what you're doing in the activity. And the more that individuals do that, those are the people, man, I gravitate to. We don't collect the same thing, but I like talking to you because I know <laughs> you, your mindset and the, your approach and what you're about and how you operate in the hobby is, is similar and not the same, but similar to the way I am. And it's just like people see that. And I think there's a special connection with collectors in the community and like, whether it's this platform, your platform or anyone else's platform, like I think there's an opportunity to speak directly to the collector and get ideas, thoughts, and people excited. And we, as we turn this next wave, like the arbitrage bullshit will have expired. And inevitably what's going to end up as the dust settles, like the collectors spending a lot of money on black one-of-one prism cards (laughs) with no intention to sell will be standing there standing tall (laughs) that that is when the dust settles that's who remains so like that's that's like the way to put the bow on this episode beautifully it's like let's build as many of those people as possible those of us who care about the long-term health and functioning of this culture of this community of this industry the way that we i think best do that is by building as many diehard collectors as we can knowing uh that it's such a treat and a privilege to be a collector and that it's not for everybody right but for people that it does resonate with it's it's giving giving somebody the gift of collecting or helping them discover on their own i mean what to me that's that's quite quite a quite a service to provide to somebody absolutely before i let you get out of here um What's something going on at Card Ladder that you want to plug that you're excited about? You know, I've also been on this kick about how like developing content that's more scholarship oriented is important uh, going forward because it's going to bring in the skeptics who like looked at the hobby during 2020 and 2021 and were like, this isn't this this is not my scene, you know, like this tele. Uh, infomercial style, you know, <laughs> this is not my scene. I think there are great collectors waiting to be born who just who just need somebody to extend the olive branch, you know, and, and to say like, look, here's here's actually some really interesting stories that the data can tell about some of the incredible things that have happened in the collecting card industry and in this marketplace. And like you know, market is only one aspect of the collector experience, but it does matter. And like the thing I'm most excited about with Card Ladder is the thing I've been most excited about from day one, which is that, you know, we for almost two years now have been spending every day of our lives over that two years curating a data set that is as reliable as possible so that people can make informed decisions so that they can actually review and study what's happened in this market 
not just over the last two years, but over the last 20, which is why you know, it's such a painstaking process to build out this database, because we, we collect all that data and we, we construct the all-time sales history for all these cards. And so having that data set is just the thing that motivates me, it expires me. It, it just, it, it's everything because I know that we have a really important duty to accurately tell whether cards are going up in value or going down in value. We have a really important duty to accurately in the story of the hobby through data. So that's, you know, I could, we, we always have new features coming out. I'm always, I'm excited about all of them and they're going to be amazing, you know, and, and I, but, but like on a day like today, on a discussion like today, the thing I'm most excited about is that I have a small role to play as a researcher, as a head researcher at Card Ladder, in providing credible, trustworthy data that's ultimately going to help people come into our industry or people who are already in our industry help them become much better collectors and enjoy this hobby. Always enjoy the conversation. Go check out Card Ladder everywhere if you want to learn more. Chris, thank you very much. Hopefully, anyone listening. At the end of this says, this is a conversation that speaks to me and you are the collector and that's what we're looking for here. So Chris, thank you very much for the time. Thanks, Brad. I always enjoy my time with Chris in the conversation. A lot of heavy stuff, a lot of good stuff around the collector and how about that Jokic banger. Take care of yourself, take care of others around you. There will always be more stacking slabs on the other side of this. So enjoy your weekend, enjoy your experience in the hobby, connect with the collector and make it happen.